Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record a podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast's The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcus Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Ellaveld, and we are coming close to the end of the year. We're going to do one more show next week. We're going to do an end-of-year wrap-up. We have a lot to be grateful about. This um, 2022 started kind of icky, but it's on the path of redeeming itself. So I think uh, so. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, not bad at all. <laughs> Definitely could have been worse. And the- <laughs> could have been a lot worse. I, I feel pretty good about it, I have to say, and a lot of levels. So so today our guest book is going to be Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. She's been with us a couple of times. She's the VP and founder of Way to Win. And uh, she's been on the show twice before. She's become one of our favorite guests because she talks about messaging and how to talk about politics to, to voters. And, and uh, we had her on before the election and she talked about how they are messaging, how Way to Win was messaging the election. And so there's some lessons, I think, that we can learn post-mortem that, that we can take and, and to check back in with her to see how her theory of messaging and appealing to voters played out. I and suspect. we should say theory backed by data because they do a lot of um, they do a lot of message testing and um, polling before they even start figuring out how to craft their messaging. So they did a post-election um, poll to see, you know, what they learned so they could, you know, test it, test against their own their own messaging and how well it worked and whether it landed that type of thing. So that's going to be really interesting. It is interesting, and, and I suspect it's going to be pretty good news, given <laughs> <Yeah>. the outcome. <laughs> Did it work? I don't know. Right. We would. But it's a little more complicated than that, obviously. So definitely it's going to be an interesting conversation. She's going to be on in about 10 minutes. Uh, before that, though, the um, Republican Party started, starting to gear up for the 2024 presidential primary. Thankfully, we can, have a, we can kind of have the cycle off. I know I know everybody wants to talk about whether Biden's going to run or not. He's, he's going to run. Don't worry about it. And, and it's actually a good thing he's going to run. Not only has he been. Incredibly you think he's successful. Run? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not 100% convinced. I think they think he's going to run right now. But I just I don't know if it's going to go that way. But anyway, I mean, absent absent a health situation, which is not out of the realm of possibility, given his age, the advantages of incumbency are massive. And I, I think, know. Should we just well, debate this? People underestimate just how critically important incumbency is. I mean, Donald Trump had an approval rating of like 35 percent in 2020, and he almost won. Like you should. Guess what? He's back down there now. He's back down at 35 percent. Yet, yet, (laughs) if you pull Republican primary voters, what are we seeing? Well, well, Republican primary voters and GOP leaners, right? This this uh, pool of people who are both, you know, down as registered Republicans, but also the conservative independents who typically vote GOP. Only thirty one percent of them want Trump to run. Now, they what they want is Trumpism without Trump, right? They don't want a change in vibe. They want the you know brash, sophomoric, like you know 
sociopathic. <laughs> they want all that good stuff that they love so much. Triggering the lips. <laughs> right, right. They want to own the really, lips. That is, that is Trumpism in a nutshell. That's it. That is. Own the lips. That's it. That's it. And you see it with anyway, Elon Musk right now. Same just, thing. Right. They don't. They don't want. It's not policy. It's all vibe. They want to own the libs. And but now because Trump's like a three time loser and all that stuff, they're like, hey, let's just let's just put it. Let's just own the libs with DeSantis. So, I mean, you know, this is I think this is the lowest he's been in terms of Republican support. You know, I was his favorability among everybody is down to uh, third among all voters is down to 35 percent right now. It took a big hit, both with the FBI, uh, you know, executing the, the you know, h- him having sensitive documents at Mar-a-Lago yeah. and then also just like totally tanking Republicans in the midterm. He took a big hit among national nationally, but also then among Republican voters. And now he's at like. I want to say he was at like 73, 75% with, with registered Republicans in civics tracking of his favorability ratings. But Ron DeSantis is at like 91% um, in civics tracking as, of his favorability ratings nationally, not in the state of Florida, nationally. Among Republicans. Among Republicans, right? In, in terms of everybody, Ron DeSantis is pulling, uh, his favorability nationally is right around like, 47 percent which is favorable. actually pretty good for yes partisan figure. it'll come right. down and, in any campaign but he starts right. at a decent place i think and just for context i want everybody to know that before the 2016 presidential election hillary clinton was in sort of like the 50s and 60s so campaigns have a way of decimating somebody's approval rating so just but he starts in a pretty decent place compared to probably a lot of the competition Absolutely. I mean, yeah, no, he starts in a good place and he's certainly in a good place with the GOP electorate in terms of a primary. Mm -hmm. So um, but, you know, he but he is he's Trumpism. I mean, you know, he his whole brand now based on the things that he's done and, you know, shipping like like the just gross, horrible things like shipping migrants from, you know, uh, or flying migrants really technically from Texas to Martha's Vineyard without informing anyone on the other side, just so he could prove a point that, you know, he didn't want, he was basically so he could own the lips. I mean, that's what it was, you know, it was supposedly like veiled in this sort of immigration thing. But anyway, um, but yeah, so so Trump is but Trump is in trouble. But I just want to make clear that just because he really is kind of starting to tank in terms of support. I mean, Republican voters want to win, as do, you know, Republican voters and sort of conservative independents. They want to win. But I I just I want to be really clear about what the chances are of him losing the nomination at the moment. He's still the odds on favorite for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest is that he owns, he is the establishment. He owns the RNC. Ronna McDaniel is completely in his pocket. Um, and so are all the, you know, the vast majority of the state party chairs uh, are very MAGA um, local officials. So he like has a stranglehold on the Republican party unless you know, a bunch of high dollar donors and Republican leaders say in Congress and maybe strategists start getting willing to go on the record to say, 
We need someone else. And that's the key going on the record. And then the state party chairs being willing to change the rules of their nomination in order to allow for someone besides Trump to wrap this up. And I just I don't see you know, they haven't shown any backbone for six solid years. So I don't know why they would suddenly start showing backbone now. No, they they weren't. So, Carrie, there was a morning consult poll released um, today, actually, that had it was a 2024 National Republican primary and it had Trump at 49 percent, DeSantis at 31. So an 18 point Trump lead, Pence at eight and then everybody else that thinks we're running, you know, at one to two or zero points. So Trump still has I mean, a lot of the the more elite Republican establishment and the ones who could do math they're realizing he's a problem, but Trump still has a really strong core. And you just spoke about changing the rules of the primary calendar in the Republican primary. They're winner take all. So right. so in the Republican, in the Democratic primary, if you had, say, Trump 49, DeSantis 31, and a state gives out 10 delegates, Trump might get six, DeSantis may get three or four. And that's how you would apportion it, right? In their rules, Trump gets all 10 points. And so even at 49, let's say, you know, that campaign takes a toll and he's down at 40 and DeSantis squeezes up to 38, 39 percent. Trump still is winner take all. So he still has that advantage that he he is he has gathered more of that Republican base than anybody else. Hard to see how anybody would overcome that. I mean, it really would be incumbent on the Republican uh, party to change those rules to create, you know, to create a proportionate allocation of delegates ain't going to happen because Trump ally, Ronica, um, what's your face? Um, <laughs> Rana, Rana Romney, McDaniel. drop the Romney, Romney McDaniel, you know, yeah. I mean, let's and, drop it. Uh, let's drop that middle name. And it's don't, funny because she's it. been, she's been, um, she's been chair of the RNC in 2018 and 2020 and 2022. And that's three losing elections in a row. And she's still going to get reelected as chair for a fourth cycle, which is absolutely yeah, and she is, and Right. But I just want to say she is because all of the MAGA Trumpy state chairs lined up behind her. Right. So this just gives you an idea. She got one hundred and one people to sign on to something saying we're going to vote for, you know, Rana McDaniel. Yeah. Romney. So (laughs) wait, wait, can I just do one final note? I just want you to know that in a head to head, DeSantis throttles Trump among both Republicans and the conservative leaners. Right. It's 56 percent to 33 percent. And I want it one final note. In a head-to-head in this U.S., it was a USA Today poll, right? In the head-to-head done by Suffolk University, in a head-to-head, Trump um, loses to Biden by seven points. But in a head-to-head against DeSantis, Biden loses to DeSantis by about three or four. Yeah, and remember, this is baseline, right? I mean, campaigns matter, turnout matters. Right, but I mean, if it's Biden and Trump, we kind of know what we got. It's it's, not like, (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's that's like not, but yeah. And there's some messaging issues that that I think help Democrats in this year, sort of creating that distinction between MAGA Republican and regular Republican. And we saw that MAGA Republicans actually lost at a far higher clip 
than regular Republicans. And while it may have been a short term boost for, you know, for us and, and we'll take it, I wonder if it may have some negative consequences if people don't associate Ron DeSantis as part of that MAGA. But we're talking messaging and who else to talk messaging with than with today's guest. She's Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. She's a co-founder and VP of Way to Win and regular guest now. Now she's a regular. <laughs> she's and, a, she's uh, a she's friend of the pod. And, she's and, a friend of the pod. <laughs> and go, uh, Jen, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Great to see you both. So to summarize, I'm going to, I got to pull up my notes here really, really quick. One I'm just going to say, while, I, while I'm, while we're waiting for, uh, to, for, uh, Marcos, to get it together, I just want to say you were right, Jen. You were right about all the messaging. Every, basically, everything you told us, I think, was spot on. But I'm going to let you tell us in more detail about that. So anyway, but you guys, you guys yeah, really nailed broad it. Frame, okay. The two times that Jen's been on the show, she talked about sort of her, her um, data-tested and proven strategy for how to effectively message. And, and it was three parts. One is to start with a positive message. It's what you know, in this case, what Democrats have done. Second part was go negative on what it means if Republicans win. And then third was sort to create that, you know, it's to really lift up the hero of the story, which is the voters, because they're the ones that can actually save America, do whatever it is that we're asking them to do, vote, vote Democratic, et cetera. So that sort of was the framework. And, and last time, you know, Jen was on the show, we, we listened to some of our, uh, her organization's ads that really followed that that um that formula then the election happened and holy crap what was that did we actually win <laughs> against all the odds against all this conventional wisdom and expectations and so now we're a couple yeah. of weeks removed we're almost i guess we're a month removed jen have yeah. you had time to really sort of absorb any lessons or are we still celebrating <laughs> I love it. Um, yes. And yes, we're still celebrating uh, because we just saw the final election last week in Georgia, which was also another huge, you know, feather in the cap of what works. Um, a combination of a strong candidate who embodies a kind of multiracial democracy, a message that leans into delivering and serving people while also um, making the contrast really clear. So we saw that work in Georgia. I, I am, I am really celebrating the wins. It was, it was amazing to see. And it did, it did feel vindicating because when we, we talked about the work that we did to organize a lot of different progressive groups and, and other groups on a message for the midterms, one of the most important, like our top takeaway that we shared with people was this election has to be a clear contrast between the voters who can take us forward and the MAGA and Trump or Trump Republicans who are going to take us backward, take away our freedoms, take away our rights. And I, ultimately, that is how voters chose to, their, their, um, to make their votes be, and their voices be heard in this election. It, it wasn't a referendum on the economy. It wasn't a referendum on the, the party in power. And those were the things that the pundits were saying that they were so sure in the beginning of the year leading all the way in. I mean, even up until the day before the election, they were very sure that that was what was going to happen. And it wasn't. And it was because, you know, we don't do predictions. Uh, the best way to predict the future is to make it, right? And that is what we did. We actually got out there. We got coordinated on a message. We made it clear what the stakes were. We had a lot of good candidates who did that as well. 
and we prevailed. And so for me, it really is a, a, a big lesson going forward that we actually, goes back to our old Howard Dean days, we have the power. We have the power to change the, the terrain. We have the power to make the conversation what we want it to be. And ultimately, that that is what happened. And, you know, you guys know we did a big battleground poll right after the election that that essentially proved that you know the two issues of Dobbs and democracy the threats to freedoms are what people said you know it, it overcame the concerns they had about inflation in the economy and it actually made them choose democrats that was true for our base coalition it was also true for independents who broke for democrats because they were worried about the threats to their freedoms let me let me piggyback off that a second because I just wrote up a focus group that Navigator Research did, which is a um, you know progressive consortium of of polling groups and. Yeah. Um, and they did so they did a series of battleground focus groups. Right. So this is I love both the polling and the focus groups. It really yes. brings things together yes. in this focus in these focus groups, which were, you know, mainly done. I mean, some of them were like in Iowa and Florida, but most of them were done in like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Colorado, places like that and, mm-hmm. uh, and North Carolina. And uh, they said that. I mean, what, what, what was clear is that the, th- these were ticket splitters. I just want to be clear about that. This is pe- mm-hmm. These are people who, like in Georgia, voted for Brian Kemp, the GOP governor, but then voted for uh, Senator Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, right? Mm-hmm. And what was super clear is that regardless of how much, how motivating it was for them, the abortion conversation just absolutely permeated everything so every yeah. like they they were all talking about abortion there was one uh there was one ticket splitter in iowa who was asked to name what drove the you know what were, what were the driving forces of the uh midterm and she's yeah. like I, I i don't even i can't remember she said i know there's a huge debate about abortion but um you know i'm sorry i can't remember what else like you know so all of yeah. these ticket splitters were really focused on abortion. Not all of them probably voted on it, although I'm sure some of them did. But the yeah. point was, is that that is what created the the dynamic, the ability for this to be a choice election between, you know, Democrats and the alternative versus this being a referendum on Democrats that yeah. that that really like, you know, that that abortion conversation just really penetrating everything. Yes, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that we found in a lot of the research we were doing in the summer, in the lead up, where we know knew Dobbs was going to be overturned, Roe v. Wade would be overturned in the Dobbs case, that um, that it wouldn't have necessarily been enough if we just talked about abortion. That we had to use abortion as an example, like a really important example of how extreme the Republicans have become, of how they're going to take away your rights and freedoms that you hold dear. And look, it's not just abortion, it's also democracy. Look how they attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Look what they're doing around voting rights. So the con- it was the connection where we called it abortion plus. You have to center abortion because we had to continue to elevate that in people's minds. It was such a clear contrast. It was a way that people could overcome their fears about inflation because we would hear voters even telling us, look, prices go up and down, but if I get my rights taken away, I'm going to be forced to have a baby I don't want to have. Like that's forever. You know, that's much different than a, a question about if prices are up or down right this second. So you're absolutely right that it was important. And, it, and I think our polling also showed that it was only the two things together 
really making people feel like they could understand this kind of MAGA Republican and what the threat of that Republican was, it's not a given that that would have just happened. And the Republican Party could have easily gotten away with how they have in the past, just like skating by on their basic fear mongering and, and, you know, keeping taxes low. And that is what happened in some places, right? Like in some states like Florida, for example, in Texas. So yeah. we're not yeah, there those, yet. Those governors, <laughs> those governors both signed abortion bans and neither one of them paid a price exactly. for it electorally. Yeah. Exactly. Because it because well here's one of my theories um, when we looked at the data people, it's very hard to take rights and freedoms away. So if you are sitting in a place like Michigan or Pennsylvania or even Arizona, Nevada, where you have these rights, you have the right to an abortion, the prospect that that would be taken away is much more motivating. Whereas in some of these red states, they don't have those, they don't have those freedoms now. They've already been taken away, right? And so it's it's a little they can get into a little bit of a different story where they justify, well, I am pro-choice, but it's it's like it's not affecting them right now, right? For whatever reason. And so the idea that I want to vote for DeSantis because he's gonna keep the immigrants out and he's gonna keep my taxes low, that actually that whole thing overrode probably the white voters and the more conservative voters in those places than in some of the other places where we saw wins. So I'm struck by what you said about sort of creating our own reality because conservatives have always been able to do that and they do that easy, whatever they want to talk about. They have a machine, they have Fox yeah. news, they have AM radio, they have a pliant traditional media that just sort of plays along. Uh, yeah. It's controversial. And, and so whether it's Honduran caravans or Salvador and MS 13 gangs, They've been able to do that. And historically, they make those up out of thin air. This time yeah. they had inflation, which was real. Yeah. And somehow that <laughs> maybe it has to be fake for them to really. It was too real. Videos. It was too real for them. They didn't know what to do because yes. it was an actual thing. And so I'm, I'm just kind of amazed yeah. by it. And, and yeah. sort of, but there was a sort of ability to, not, not even ability. It was just our candidates talking. Yeah. The right way, because what was it about four days before the election? Joe Biden did a whole closing speech on the election based on democracy. And he was ripped apart mercilessly by pundits, by our own people. Yeah. And saying that it was political malpractice, that this is an election about economics and inflation and gas prices. And he's not talking about those things. And now he's going to cost us the election. And to me, it seemed obvious and I, i'm curious to see if you had data or how, how you view it. it seems obvious to me that if the one issue republicans have was inflation and gas prices why would we talk about the one issue that they had going for them right like no you change the freaking subject and you talk about the issues that benefit us and yeah. yet there was this incredible crush and yet be, he he stuck to it he talked about democracy and obviously the results when you see the exit polling you see that abortion and Donald Trump slash democracy were the issues that that drove our turnout and swing voters. So it worked. But we don't have the Fox News and AM radio machine. We don't have a pliant traditional media. In fact, they were actively working against us. They were they were amplifying those BS Republican sham polling polls to create this narrative. Yeah. And it none of that works. What happened? Can you you (laughs) have a theory? Because I'm I mean, it's exciting and I want to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I, I do. Well, I'll say, I would say a couple of things. One, 
You're right. And when we were starting to look into what should our narrative be for the midterms, we knew we needed something to break through. We knew that voters were overwhelmed. Voters were overwhelmed. They were grumpy. Voters were not excited about this. They were unhappy about Biden not getting enough done. They were unhappy about COVID being so difficult. They were unhappy about inflation. All the things. We knew that. So we knew we were going to have something to cut through. And the only way that we could cut through is to be really coordinated and aligned on what we're saying. If we're all saying the same thing, whether it's candidates or groups or people who are talking on TV, we're all kind of reinforcing the same storyline. That's the only way we're going to get through to voters. And we knew that the terrain that we wanted to be on needed to be a terrain that could be possible to both mobilize and persuade this coalition that we needed, which was, it's diverse. Like you might think of the coalition as being from, Liz Cheney to AOC, like ideologically, right? It goes all the way there. And it's diverse in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of generation. It's diverse. And so we called it mobisuasion because it was like, I told you this before, how do we mobilize and persuade together, right? And so it's true that in that moment, we weren't ready to run on inflation. We could look at the numbers and see if we tried to run on that. It's not, I mean, we saw in our own poll, we're losing voters who think the economy and inflation is the top issue by 32 points. That is a very big thing to overcome in the course of two months. So we knew that we had to go onto terrain, which was more favorable. So when you look at how people, when people care about democracy, who do they want? Democrats by 30 points. When people care about abortion, who do they want? Democrats by 30 points. That was the train we needed to shift it to in order to win. But we were not letting go of the question of economics and inflation. And I think this is why it was a kind of a magic formula that allowed us to win, because we weren't ignoring that. And I think rather than Biden talking about that, what he did was actually act. You know, Biden and the whole Democratic coalition passed the Inflation Reduction Act at that very key moment in August when you know, when we had been talking to voters, like, they were very unhappy. Like they were not happy. They they couldn't understand what was happening. And then once that passed, and the the whole media environment started to change, like Democrats did this thing, and it's inflation reduction, and it's climate investment, and it's you know make, lowering costs. It it actually gave those candidates out on the trail something to say in that combination of the positive. Here's what we've done. And you know what? Every single Republican voted against it. And you know what? They're out here trying to scare you about this stuff. They're trying to take away your freedoms. And they are they completely blocked any chance to make things better. They don't have a plan to make things better for you. It actually fed into this idea of the contrast and painting the Republicans in this way that that I think helped give it an overall boost. It's like we didn't win on that issue, but enough of our voters understood that the Democrats did do something to try to make it better. And then we could talk about the candidates could talk about having done, taken action to lower costs and reduce inflation. And then you start to see the gas prices go down. I think all of it together, you know, combined is what is what did it. Yeah, let me just um, throw something in here, a, a stat that makes that sort of drives that home, which is that and I <laughs> I heard this on when I was listening to uh, when I was listening to the focus group with Sarah Longwell, um, but it was mm-hmm. it was put out by Amy Walter, who I don't think she got a lot about this election. Right. But I do trust her statistics and mm-hmm. uh, from the Cook Political Report. And mm-hmm. what she said was, is that there was this whole group of voters who somewhat disapproved of Biden. Right. And the somewhat different disapproved 
Roof was kind of an interesting group because they were more prone to vote for Democrats anyways. But they at Cook Political Report, they kind of concluded these people won't vote. They won't show up to vote. Well, yeah. it turned out that they did show up to vote and they voted mm-hmm. for, for Democrats by four points. Now, that doesn't sound like much. But in 2018, the group of people who somewhat disapproved of Trump showed up and voted against Republicans by 30 points. So that's a 34 point difference in somewhat disapprovers who who voted for Democrats this time versus voted against Republicans in the last midterm. So anyway, I don't know if that was too too much in the weeds. I love that. No, I I mean, I think that's a great statistic and it's a great point. And it kind of hits on the point we talked about before and the message around um, putting voters in the center of the story, giving voters agency, making them the hero. It was exactly that kind of voter that we were targeting with that messaging. Because when we we learned early on, there were this group of voters who was not that excited. They kind of want to turn off politics. They don't think it's, you know, they're a little bit turned off by the whole thing. They wouldn't show up and vote for Republicans. They consider them themselves moderate, but it's because they're kind of like moderate in terms of they're not super like ideological activists and they're just not super engaged, but, but they would definitely vote for Democrats. They wouldn't vote for Republicans if they don't, if they don't vote, it's them not voting, right? It's if they don't vote for us, it's because they stayed home, not because they chose the other side. And it was important in that vote, in that group, for them to feel like they had agency and that this was about them. And I actually think that's the part of Biden's speech that was so important. I remember when I was listening to that speech, he, I mean, I think he might have even said you have the power. I mean, we'll have to go back and look, but he really embodied that idea of like, this is your job. You are the ones who are going to do this. You are going to save democracy. I think it worked, you know, that, that it's that exact kind of voter that, that responded to that message much more than like, this is your job. This is your duty. You have to do this for us. You have to elect Democrats, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's more like, it's more like making them the hero. Yeah. Uh, Carrie and I were talking earlier today and Carrie, I'm going to let you run with this because I want to look ahead towards the 2024 election. And you were talking about, uh, Carrie and I were, 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 you know, as we were preparing for this show, she was talking about how, okay, the, the message was we had to save democracy and our voters did. And right. what does that mean for 2024? And Carrie, you can carry it forward. Well, what idea. was interesting about this, and this is comes, <laughs> I just listen to podcasts all the time. This comes from Pod Save America. I was heard the, it was listening to these guys sort of bant, bant, banner around a statistic that a lot of people, you know, even though they did want to save democracy, it's not that they are pro fascism or anything, but a lot of people kind of, you know, still feel left behind by this democracy. Yeah. And that to some extent, when we're talking about saving democracy, which you guys did a killer final ad on, you know, coming together to save democracy. And um, I I wanted to play it, but it was heavy on graphics that wouldn't have translated (laughs) to to the pod for people listening. But anyways, it was a great ad about how we can save ourselves, right? Protect Um, our freedoms, yeah. Right, protect our freedoms. Voters uh, as as the hero of the story. It was great. You decide what's possible. You decide what's possible. Gosh, it sounds like you almost wrote that ad. Um, (laughs) I I was just thinking about it even. (laughs) Anyway, so um, so but the 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 interesting thing they were saying was is that so many people feel uh, left behind by democracy. Do we have to going forward start to think about being reformers of democracy and not just protectors of democracy, um, the Democratic Party? In other words, if there's a whole group of people who are like, 
yeah, I don't really want another system. I mean, I don't want fascism. I don't want socialism. But like, do I, am I really voting to protect this democracy that I feel left behind by? I mean, it does it. I'm just wondering if as we go forward, if we if if there's um, space or if it's even a good idea to start to paint Democrats as reforming democracy to work for everyone to yeah. be more inclusive. And I don't just mean racially inclusive. I do mean racially inclusive, but I mean also like socioeconomically inclusive, you know, yeah. um, just, you know, that everybody gets to participate in having their rights, et cetera. So I don't know. I just throw that out for fodder. Where do we go from here? <laughs> Where do we go from yeah. here? Yeah. What's our 2024? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that we didn't save democracy. You know, I mean, democracy is still very much threatened. There's, I mean, we, we were able to stave off a very big threat to democracy and our ability to win in 24 by sweeping all those statewide secretary of state races and governor's races in key battlegrounds. That was a huge threat to democracy that we were able to stave off. But we're not there yet on the state legislature doctrine. We still have gerrymandered state legislatures in lots of places, which we have not overcome, where if we get a Supreme Court doctrine that says that those state legislatures can overturn the results of, a, of an election because they decide not to verify it, that's a huge threat to democracy. So I just want to be clear, like, we did not save it. Um, we did take a step I think we took a step toward the multiracial inclusive democracy that we need, that we all want. It was a, it was a question of where we going to take, where we going to take a step back, where we going to have a backlash or are we going to take a step forward? But we're not there. We're not at the promised land of like actually having a democracy that delivers for everyone. So we are just still have to be in the fight. So I think we have to be careful not to just keep, it's like the, it's like if we keep telling people, this is the most important election of your life. If you don't vote, everything is going to go to shit. If you keep telling that to people over and over again, at some point, they're just like, what is happening? Like, I can't, that does, does not continue well, to becomes, motivate me. Yeah, it becomes <laughs> the new Republicans want to take away your right to an abortion. And then people are like, oh, yeah, that's just. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. So we have to be careful not to over promise that we save democracy because, I mean, we didn't. Like I said, there's still big threats. But. I think like I think part of the way forward is learning what we did well and did right this time. Like you want to keep doing what works. And I think it does really work when we have this kind of message alignment and coordination across a lot of different sectors and places. It mattered that Biden was saying things that activist grassroots organizers were saying on the ground in Pennsylvania and that Georgia organizers were saying in their events and that Fetterman was saying, and that congressional candidates, you know, I mean, you realize when it starts to echo that everybody is hearing this same story, the same kind of call to action around the midterms. I think we have to learn from that and keep doing that. It's not easy. It's not easy to coordinate a message across that kind of diversity, but it is possible. Yeah. Especially for right. Democrats. Yeah. Especially for Democrats. We're, it's not one of our cats, The proverbial cats <laughs> of the political world. We yes. do our own thing. <laughs> but we did it and we learned from research. We're grounded and rooted in data. So we know that what we're doing is also working. We're not just making it up. We're making sure that what we do is actually moving the voters. I think the other thing is just understanding this coalition that we are in. This coalition, like I said, is very diverse and we cannot think that it's like all going to be saved by one kind of median voter that you hear a lot of that kind of, you just have to think about this one median voter. 
No, median voters don't win elections. Diverse coalitions win elections. So how do we continue to deliver for that coalition? How do we continue to communicate to that coalition? And how do we keep finding ways to unite that coalition rather than divide? Or the old way of triangulating and saying like, well, I'm going to throw this part under the bus so that this part will like me. That's the, that's the old way. And we can't do that anymore. It's just not going to work. So how do we embrace that whole coalition and forge that multiracial, multigenerational coalition, I think is really important. And then I think the final thing I'll say is like, we have got to, we've got to chip away at that deficit that we're facing when people think about the economy. And I know that this one is really complicated because it's very fraught and there's a lot of history where it's like, we just have to talk about the economy and jobs and everything will be saved if we just talk about kitchen table issues. And that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) That is not what I'm saying. I'm oh my God, Jenica is on here saying that we, we need to talk about more kitchen table issues. Oh my gosh, red alert, red alert. No, I'm just kidding. You know, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm but saying- But that's what I, they're all saying. That's what literally that. every other Democrat- <laughs> pundit strategist is saying. But it's just not an either or. I think we have to understand that we need a message. We need a we need a message. We need a way of thinking about the economy and talking about and actually delivering on economic issues for people, talking delivering and talking about it in a way that uh, really brings those issues together. It's like the inclusive kind of economics. Like we can't let go of race. We can't let go of gender. These issues around our culture are important. We have to we have to go to bat for that. But we also have to give people a reason to feel like they understand how Democrats governing is also making their lives better and how we have a view of the economy that somehow is gives them a sense that it's bigger or better than just keeping my taxes low, which is what the Republicans are promising. We've got to get that. We've got to sell them on a different kind of vision. And I think we have to think about how we meld together around race and class together. Those we got to build this diverse coalition across class too, because we have, we have the ability to do that. Not just thinking about only people who are working class, but how do we find solidarity between working class and professional class people who actually want the same things in the end they want better schools for their kids. They want to be able to invest in their futures. They want time with their families, all those things. They want healthy air and water, you know, on the planet. We can deliver that, but that that's where we need to go. We're not there yet. And one of the scary things in our poll was that 74% of people or 78% of people couldn't even name a single thing Democrats had done to improve their lives. So that is the, the baseline that we have to get moved from. I would like to, can I just piggyback off that? There's a million points that I want to make, but I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice. Yeah, we're almost out of like, time. So I know, I know. Sorry. I know Very strategic like about what you want to focus on. This last I'm question. sorry, Marcos, but I have 15 minutes worth of content that I want to deliver right now. No, I'm sacrificing. I'm, I'm cutting the, cutting the chef or whatever, the wheat from the chef. Okay. So here's what, here's what I'm going to boil it down to. I think we are going through also, and this should help Democrats if we take advantage of it, a fundamental shift in values, which is the younger generation, the under 40 generation of voters, which voted more for Democrats, I think by like 18 points, whereas yeah, everyone 22 over points. 40, 20, 22 points. Thank you. Whereas everyone over 40 voted for Republicans by like 10, 4, 5, something mm, like that. But yeah. yeah. It wasn't quite as much, but anyways, that's the divide. It's under 40 versus yes. plus 40. Yes. And and what I'm noticing is, is that this younger generation, 
values very different things than just their 401k and the stock market and their wage and whatever. And that's why Mm -hmm. we see all these younger people moving towards unionization. That's Mm -hmm. why we see um, younger people. I heard someone say, I heard on NPR, this one young woman say, you know, my father and their generation, they're all looking at their 401ks. You know what I'm doing? I'm just, I just want to be alive because all I've done is done voter, um, done shooter drills for my entire life in school. And so, you know, and that's, that's an, that is a issue of quality of life. Do you spend all your time looking around, you know, corners because you're worried that the next, you know, assault weapon is coming at you. I mean, this is their quality of life no longer, I think just equals, stock market, 401k, wage, how many things they can buy, et cetera. That is that those are the those are the preferences and, uh, you know, uh, of a different generation. And so this new generation coming up, there's it's a much bigger field of things that they're worried about and that they consider important. And they are already on the track to voting Democratic because they've done it. Most of them have done it for maybe one and maybe two election cycles in a way that I think Reagan did among Gen Xers when I was when I was younger. I mean, I I wasn't I didn't turn out to be a Republican, but Reagan pretty much solidified for Republicans a, a you know a generation of voters. And I think Democrats are moving to your points about trying to get across this extreme coalition of people to, uh, you know, uh, Democrats are, are in position to solidify this group of voters who has very, have very different values um, going forward. Yeah, I, I agree. With, I totally agree with what you're saying. And the, it's a little bit like that coalition right now is a little bit like a Band-Aid. And we just, because it, it's a little bit dependent on how they are and how, they per, how they're perceived. But we need to build a more durable coalition that gets to what you're saying, that speaks to people's values, that over time, it's not a question in this election or that election, which way am I going? It's a little bit more clear. And we have a bigger, durable coalition that's rooted in those young people, but that includes persuasion of the the other parts of the the coalition as well. So that is our show. Jen, I want to have, I want to, hopefully you can come back sometime early next year because I really want to talk about what we can be doing and talking about in between this this middle part of the cycle, right? This yes. off year, odd Very number important. year. Because we talked about what happened in 2022. We talked about 2024, but we got to do something in 2023. So I'm really curious about what that space is and how we can use that time to better improve our chances towards 2024. So I, I I was going to ask you about that. And I thought, well, you know what, maybe that's a much broader conversation. And Carrie was just like, Carrie's like, I'm flowing right now. I'm flowing. (laughs) So uh, yeah, let's do that. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Jennifer fernandez Ancona is the VP and founder of way to win and I'm really excited about the work you guys did and you will be doing moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Carrie, that's our show. Um, <laughs> we will be back. No, next it was great. Week. I love having Jen on. I love having Jen on. She's so great. She's awesome. I'm like, she's like our honorary co-host. <laughs> yeah, we don't, She doesn't know it, but we've elevated her to co-host of the brief. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Next time she comes up, her picture will be up on our little logo. <laughs>
<laughs> Carrie, thank you so very much. Uh, thanks to Walter for the producing. Thanks to everybody behind the scenes, Kara, Dorothy, Paul, for everything they do to help the show. And thank you, the viewer, listener, for joining us every week and being part of this movement for our democracy. Um, one of the things I worry about is that we talk about how we're always having to save democracy and we save democracy this year. We may have to do it again next year. And then I remember how Republicans fought to get rid of abortion for cycle after cycle. They never grew tired of the battle. In fact, it seemed to fuel them. And I really want to think about and maybe talk about how we keep that intensity up because that intensity, one, is a midterm election in ways that Democrats, any party, hadn't done in 88 years since the 1930s, winning governorships, winning the Senate the way we did, hadn't been done since the 1930s. So we did something right, and we need to be able to replicate it and maintain that intensity, not just in 2024, but moving ahead because we're building a long-term movement. So this is exciting stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to it. But Carrie, I'm also looking forward to the holiday break. So <laughs> I think yes, we but we have work. one. We have one more. Yep, that we all we're pre-recording really, really on hard. Friday, right? But you, you, but we'll be available next week. One more we podcast. Are, yeah, we have one more episode, and then. But this is a time for everybody to really like bask in the fact that we won and we did some really cool stuff. And let's uh, energize our batteries because this battle isn't over; it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. So, thank you again for joining us. Love you all. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. 